0: Well, it is great to be with y'all tonight. Um, As you guys know, this is the first lesson that we're going to be doing through a call to prayer, a little book written by a man named J.C. Ryle. He was a 19th century pastor theologian in England, and uh, with your handouts, I provided you with a biographical sketch of his life and ministry that before we uh, jump in too deep, I want us to go over that sketch. We're going to learn a little bit about the man that we're going to be uh, learning from over the next several weeks. And just for the sake of the listener, for those who weren't able to be here tonight or who may just be listening in uh, at a future date, the reason we're doing this study is here at our local church, First Baptist Church of Edna, we are in a unique season right now where we're taking a concentrated effort on uh, focusing on the power of prayer, the value of prayer, um, the biblical basis for praying we have temporarily suspended our Wednesday night corporate worship sessions for our youth, and instead of our corporate worship sessions in the uh, student ministry building, which is where we have our youth gatherings, we are gathering with the um, adults in the broader church at prayer meeting, and we are, uh, in substituting for our Wednesday night lesson, we are having these devotionals on Thursday nights or on uh, different nights throughout the week, depending on the schedule of our use. So we're looking forward to being able to do this over the next several weeks, and we pray that God will really open our eyes to the value of prayer and the privilege that it is to come alongside one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and go before the throne of grace. So. With that in mind, um, let me open us up in a word of prayer to, to kind of apply what we're going to be talking about and learning about here tonight and over the next few weeks and uh, ask for the Lord's favor. So let's go to prayer uh, to the Lord in prayer, guys, and then we'll jump right into our lesson tonight. Father in heaven, forgive us for the times in which we neglect to pray and for the times in which we take prayer for granted, Lord, the... Reality that you welcome us into your presence to to make our requests known to you, to call upon your name, to express our desires and our fears and our insecurities and everything that's going on in our life. The fact that you welcome that, Lord, um, on the basis of Jesus Christ's perfect life, substitutionary death, bodily resurrection from the dead, uh, accredited to our behalf through faith alone. We are so grateful to be reminded of the privilege that it is to know you and the blessing that it is to know that you care for us as your adopted children in Christ. Father, as your adopted sons and daughters, we pray that we would grow in our frequency of prayer, that we would be people committed to praying in all circumstances, and that we would give thanks to you for all the blessings you've given to us. Father, we pray for your blessing over this lesson and over this curriculum that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks from J.C. Ryle, a a a book that was written well over a 100 years ago, Lord, but nevertheless is is, uh, eternally relevant because it is truth that is rooted and grounded in your word, and it is a powerful reminder of what we should be modeling in our lives as your people, as followers of Jesus Christ. So God, as we turn now to um, Ryle's work here, just give us wisdom, Lord, to accurately understand your word and to apply its truths to our lives as we leave this place that we would be shaped and transformed by what we are studying and what we are going to be discussing as a small group. And Father, we ask that you would move in power through this youth ministry and the days and weeks to come as we learn what it means to come before you in prayer. We love you, God, and we give you thanks. We ask you to be pleased with our study tonight and all of the discussions that follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we begin, as promised earlier, um, I do want us just to give attention to this biographical sketch of J.C. Ryle's Life and Ministry. This is um, a very short overview of the man who wrote this book, and I just think, as we would want to do with anybody that we study or learn from, we want to know a little bit of the context that undergirded his work and, and really his life, or her, if, if we're talking about a female author. Um, so just follow along in this handout. Uh, as you can see, it's, it's just a um, brief paragraph here, but hopefully it'll be of use to us as we look into Ryle's work in the next few weeks. We know a little bit about the author that we're going to be learning from. So as stated here in this sketch, John Charles Ryle, J.C. Ryle, was born on May tenth, 1816 to a wealthy family in Macclesfield, England. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but we're going to go with it. Macclesfield, England. After a period of private schooling, Ryle entered Eton College in 1828, where he excelled at rowing and cricket. Over the course of his childhood and his life as a young adult, various circumstances would eventually awaken Ryle to the knowledge that all was not well with his soul. These realizations led to his conversion in 1837, after he experienced a severe chest infection that threatened to result in his death. The outcome of that traumatic illness not only resulted in Ryle's conversion, but would also lead him to become a serious student of the Bible and a man of prayer. Over the next four years, Ryle would be formally ordained into gospel ministry and he entered into the ministry of the Church of England in 1841. Ryle would serve in various ministry capacities over the next several decades of his life, writing gospel tracts biblical and theological books that are still sold to our present day, and verse-by-verse commentaries on the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In 1880, Ryle would become the first bishop of Liverpool, England, and he would serve in that capacity until his retirement and death in 1900. As a godly man who was widowed three times, Ryle is remembered as, quote, the man of granite with the heart of a child, end quote. In other words, Ryle is remembered to this day as a man who modeled a firm and unwavering commitment to sound doctrine while simultaneously modeling Christ-like compassion, graciousness, and love towards those he encountered throughout his life as a believer. We, would, we should count it as a great privilege to learn from the insights we will glean from J.C. Ryle as we now to prepare to embark upon his powerful work, A Call to Prayer. What a testimony that must be to be remembered as somebody who was firm in commitment to the Word of God and was willing to stand for the truthfulness of Scripture, no matter what the cost to his life and ministry. But he did it in a way where people could see Christ in and through him. Um, what, a, what a model that is for us to follow. And uh, hopefully as we As we study this curriculum, um, the Holy Spirit will allow some of those virtues and life to be produced in us. You'll notice uh, with that handout I gave you, there are, I think, a total of three pages in it. No, I guess a total of just under four pages. Um, We're going to be looking at the first two sections of this book. Again, the book itself is only, I think, 25 or 27 pages long. Um, so we're going to cover a couple sections and discuss it every time that we meet together throughout this series. Um, the first section here is titled, Prayer is Needful to Man's Salvation. Uh, just as we get started, I, I would like us to just kind of center our thoughts as Ryle does here. He, he quotes from 1 Timothy two one. And if somebody would be willing to read 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4 to get us started, um, I think that would be really valuable just because that's where Ryle begins. And the reason why we're going to go to verse 4 is it's kind of its own unit of thought. Those four verses are one single unit of thought in the Apostle Paul's mind writing to Timothy. So I think it would be valuable for us to read those four verses. So um, if you have a Bible and would feel open to reading that series of verses, please feel free to do so. Did you bring your Bible, son? Um, okay, let me go. One through four. Yeah, First uh, Timothy chapter two, verses one through four. And silently, grab you a Bible, okay? Emma, do you have one on your phone? Uh, yes. All right.
1: I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth.
0: Amen. So, a lot of uh, ink has been spilled, and rightfully so, over those four verses throughout the course of church history. And we're not going to dive into those verses too much other than just to make a note of the fact that Paul instructing Timothy there is calling him as a pastor and by extension all believers who would read this letter to make prayers offered on behalf of of other people, people who are in positions of authority, people who are in positions that um, are not necessarily authoritative, but they're entrusted with just general work responsibilities, relationships, things of that nature. In other words, regardless of who a person may be and what they may be involved with, we as Christians need to be those who pray for them. With that in mind, just by way of orienting our thoughts, let's dive into this curriculum. Um, Just to make sure we're all engaged tonight, I am going to read some of the uh, portions of Ryle's work that we're going to be covering tonight, but I'm also going to need some volunteers. So um, I'm going to read those first two paragraphs right under the main heading, and then I would like two volunteers to read the uh, two paragraphs under the next heading. So Sai, you can read that first paragraph, and then Emma, you can take the second one. So. Um, No, right there at the the bottom. Yeah, you'll read that one, Sai, And then Emma, you will read this one at the very bottom. And I'll read those first two at the top. So, Ryle opens. Prayer is needful to a man's salvation. That's the main heading. And the subheading. Do you pray? Ryle says, I have a question to offer you. It is contained in three words. Do you pray? The question is one that none but you can answer. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. "'Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relations know, that is, your family members know. "'But whether you pray in private or not is a matter between yourself and God. "'I beseech you in all affection to attend to the subject I bring before you. "'Do not say that my question is too close. "'If your heart is right in the sight of God, there is nothing in it to make you afraid.' Do not turn off my question by replying that you, quote, say your prayers. It's one thing to say your prayers and another to pray. Do not tell me that my question is unnecessary. Listen to me for a few minutes and I will show you good reasons for asking it. It's quite the introduction, is it not? Um, Do you pray? That is a question that we all need to answer honestly and thoughtfully reflect on when surveying the course of our life. I do have A uh, multi-part question for us to just talk about briefly tonight uh, just by way of opening this conversation on Ryle's work. The questions that I have, first question, is what does your prayer life currently look like and how do you think you can take steps to improve it? I think that really gets to the nuts and bolts of what Ryle's going for. Do you pray? What does it look like? Um, And then the second part of that multi-part question. You know how much I love multi-part questions. Um, As you think about what your prayer life currently looks like and, and maybe some steps you can take to improve it, I want us also to think about this. What do you think Ryle means when he says, quote, it is one thing to say your prayers and yet another to pray? So you can dive in, I mean, any of those parts, feel free to, to jump on in and, and we'll talk about it.
2: I feel like like when you're in a group, like we are, and you prayed over us, I feel like if we weren't, if we weren't following with you and like weren't really trying to dive deep in that prayer with you, that would be us just saying prayers.
0: That is that's perfect. I think that's a, a great answer to that question. How many of you guys, I'll be honest, it happens to me sometimes. Um, this, let's just make it practical. Sunday morning, right? Brother Robert's saying a prayer, and it's early in the morning, and you've got a lot going on. Football's later. Maybe you got homework to do, and um, it's early. And Robert starts praying, and you get through the first three words. You're, you're following them along, and then I immediately think, man, I wonder how I did on that math test last week. Or, ah, I'm a little bit behind on sermon prep for this week. In my case, I I need to really make sure I read X, Y, and Z. Right? We we all sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we say prayers, we're involved with the act of praying, and yet we're not really praying. We're we're just going through the motions. Um, You know, it's fascinating. Jesus addresses this very pointedly in his sermon on the mount Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 and following This came to mind as I thought about this because this can happen in group prayer it can happen in private prayer You guys like literally and I'm sure you found yourself doing this as I know I have You can be praying to God going through you know just a checklist as it were of things you want to bring before God's attention but your mind and your your emotions are elsewhere you're thinking about school or relationships or problems and 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 you're really not there with the Lord you're saying things you're you're, you're trying to 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 follow the biblical instruction to pray but you're really not there right listen to what Christ says about that very convicting but very important for us to keep in mind Christ says Starting in verse 5 of Matthew 6, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, referring to the Jewish religious leaders of that day, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let me stop there. I'm a pastor, okay um, I'm involved in many instances where i'm asked to pray publicly, right um, If my prayer life is simply reduced to the times in which I pray in the presence of others and I'm not making time to go to the Lord in secret i'm I'm the fulfillment of what Jesus is critiquing here, and I think that's really important for us all to think about. Um, you know, prayer is supposed to be something we do with the Father. It's important to pray in groups. It's important to go to prayer meeting. It's important to do what we're doing tonight. We're going to pray some more after we finish our devotional. Um, but prayer needs to be intimate. It needs to be coming before the face of your heavenly Father um, and making your needs known to Him, and ultimately aligning your desires and your will with His. But but Christ goes on. He says, verse seven. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Christ is saying, have intentionality with your prayers. Um, you know, so I have dear friends and family members who are involved in uh, Roman Catholicism, but you know, just saying the Lord's prayer over and over and over again or Hail Mary's over and over and over again without any mind or any heart into it or any intimacy with God, th- that is exactly what Christ is saying not to do. Or, or when you pray and you're just, like, for example, I think we're all guilty of this too. Father, thank you for this food. Bless it to the strength and nourishment of our bodies. Amen. You know, just, just all right, I know I'm supposed to pray, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this out so I can move on and, and check the little box that we like to do as Christians that's that's not what we're supposed to do in prayer. prayer is supposed to be intentional there's there's an intentionality with it, and it's to be it's to recognize that God already knows what you need. He's ordained the very words you're going to say in this prayer, get to the point, have that recognition of god's sovereign um and an infinitely wise understanding of your life. And bring your request to him in light of that. Don't, don't just go through the motions and view it as something trivial. Have intentionality. And then in the verses that follow, we have, um, we call it the Lord's Prayer. I've heard uh, John MacArthur say it like this. It's really the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer in John 17, right? In the garden, uh, the high priestly prayer that we all are familiar with in John 17. But this is the model prayer for followers of Christ. He says, starting in verse 9, going down to verse 13, pray in this way. millions of pages filled and, and, and expositing and delving into that prayer. It's, it's so simple and so direct, yet it's it's very profound. There, there's intentionality in those words that Christ said. There's a purpose for them. There should likewise be a purpose in our prayers as well. That should be the mindset we carry. Um, I know we're in a kind of an intimate setting, so I don't want you guys to feel put on the spot. Um, I have five just very practical ways that I think could help improve our prayer life i 'm not trying to say that i 've got prayer figured out. I, I am continually trying to work and grow in my own private prayer life. Um, but as I reflected on just my own life and what i've heard, others talk about the discipline of prayer, the practice of prayer here here's five just very i think practical simple ways that we can take steps to improve the prayer life that we currently have. And and I'll give them to you guys. They'll be here on the recording. I can give them to you guys. You want to write them down if if you're interested. But number one, find a consistent time to pray. Of course, we know from the New Testament we are to pray without ceasing. So there's there's, there's really a um, reality that we should be um, willing and ready to pray as we go throughout our day and encounter different circumstances. But I think there's also value and really setting aside a time every day, even if it's just for five minutes sometimes, but you have a consistent time where you can go be with the Father, pray to Him, um, commune with Him, and make your requests known to Him. So find a consistent time to pray, number one. Number two, pray out loud. Um, there's nothing magical about praying out loud, but I find that when I talk out loud, my words make sense, my thoughts aren't jumbled, I'm not as distracted, um, when I talk to you guys, I'm, I mean, I'm talking out loud. Well, prayer, not to put it too crassly, but we, we're talking to God. We're talking to our Father in heaven. So if we talk to one another verbally, there, there is also value, I would say, in, in speaking out loud to God. It helps you kind of focus your thoughts and your prayers a little bit more. Um, so, again, just, just a thought there. Number three, have a prayer list to follow and keep track of requests. You know, last night at prayer meeting, if you were able to go, we we had a a list of prayers for our church, for our community, for our military, for our kingdom and salvation related matters, and um, throughout the course of a year to year basis, some of those requests get answered, and it's it's a time when they do get answered. It's a time of celebrating. So when you keep track of your prayer requests, you can tangibly track and see. How God is answering prayer. And you have a way of going back to remind yourself when you're in a difficult season of life. You can go back and say, you know, God, you were faithful here, 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 and here. I know, Lord, you'll be faithful here. It might not be what I want it to be. It might not turn out how I would like for it to turn out. But you are going to accomplish your glory and my spiritual good in this situation as you did all these times in the past. Just a thought there. So, number one, find a consistent time to pray. Number two, pray out loud. Number three, have a prayer list to follow and track your requests. Number four, don't pray when you feel distracted or rushed. Um, kind of what we were talking about earlier, right? Be intentional. Get to the point. Um, try to really maximize the t- the quality of your time in prayer. Um, don't don't view it as a chore that you got to rush through. Or, ah, man, like I got all this stuff going on. If you got to put, if you got to pray later or, or have your quiet time earlier reschedule it if you've got a lot going on. Um, That that could be a really helpful way in making your uh, prayer life more vibrant. And lastly, um, grow in your understanding of what the Bible teaches about the power and purpose of prayer. So what we're doing throughout the next several weeks. Uh, In God's providence, we have a lot going on in the life of our church. We have a lot going on in our youth ministry. Some of our youth have a lot going on in their uh, individual lives and in their family lives We know broadly as Christians that we're supposed to pray, but if we don't really take time to study prayer and consider what the Bible says about prayer, we're not really going to understand much of why we should pray in the first place other than it's just the Christian thing to do, and my mom, dad, and grandparents do it, so I guess I should do it as well, right? I mean, we need to really make sure that we understand biblically why we should pray. I think, again, those five ways, um, there's certainly a lot more that could be said there, but I think those five ways um, could, could maybe help out a little bit. Any other thoughts on that before moving on to the next couple paragraphs? All right, Cy, so go ahead and read from the I ask down to uh, the end of that uh, paragraph there.
1: I ask whether you pray because this prayer is absolutely needful to a man's salvation. I say absolutely needful, and I say so advisedly. I'm not speaking that to infants or idiots. I'm not settling the state of the heathen. I know that where little is given, there little will be required. I speak especially to those who call themselves Christians. In a land like our own and such, I say no man or woman can expect to be saved. Who does
0: not pray. Alright, Emma, read that second paragraph and then we're going to talk about some of that.
2: I hold salvation by grace as strongly as anyone. I would gladly offer free and full pardon to the greatest sinner that ever lived. I would not hesitate to stand by his dying bed and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even now, and you shall be saved. But that a man can can have salvation... Without asking for it, I cannot see in the Bible that a man will receive pardon for his sins. who will not so much as lift up his heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me. And this I cannot find. find. I can find that nobody will be saved by his prayers. But I can find that without prayer... anybody will
0: be saved. right, and I've got one more paragraph on the next page that I'm going to read before we talk about this section. Ryle continues, It is not absolutely needful to salvation that a man should read the Bible. A man may have no learning or be blind and yet have Christ in his heart. It is not absolutely needful that a man should hear public preaching of the gospel or public preaching of the word of God. He may live where the gospel or the word of God is not preached or he may be bedridden or deaf. But the same thing cannot be said about prayer. It is absolutely needful to salvation that a man should pray. Now, um, Ryle is just cutting right to the point. I mean, this is very direct, very convicting stuff. Um, I, I want us to think about this question how does Ryle connect prayer, in these three paragraphs, how does Ryle connect prayer with the external evidence that somebody has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? And in light of that connection, do you agree with Ryle that a mark of genuine salvation can be seen by somebody's prayer life? Why or why not? So first part of that question, What's Ryle, What's what do you think Ryle's saying here when he talks about Prayer being evidence of saving faith. What would you say if you could summarize the argument Ryle's making there?
3: You
1: read the question.
0: Yeah. Um, how is Ryle connecting prayer with? Um, the external evidence that somebody's come to saving faith.
4: This is by the Spirit that you're made alive. The Spirit yearns to be with the Father. The Spirit, your Spirit, it's right, yearns to fellowship with God, and you don't know how, but the Spirit intervenes, and that's why you you want to pray. Your prayers are genuine, mm-hmm. and it's because the Spirit that lives within you.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, and we've got to be careful here. As Ryle, I think he's very careful here. Yes. He's not teaching works-based salvation. No. He's not saying that you must pray to be saved. What he's saying, though, very very tersely is this. Somebody who's saved can't help but pray. Absolutely. It, it's the natural overflow of a heart that God has transformed by the Spirit and and it's the natural overflow of a love that a creature has for the creator um Ryle is saying here that and as he just he led off by saying, only you know what your prayer life looks like behind closed doors and what he's saying is in a nutshell, if you don't pray, that is evidence that you're not a believer now he's not saying you've got to pray for three hours every day don't don't misunderstand this he's not calling us to. You know, Herculean prayer life. Everybody's prayer life looks different. But what he's saying is, the true believer's natural inclination is to commune with God through prayer, and that—that's really what he's asking the reader to, to 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 analyze in their own life: is is prayer a part of your life at all, or do you find yourself going? Well, really, <laughs> endlessly without ever praying, or maybe your prayers are only in a crisis where you recognize that, like, there's nothing I can do here, so I guess I'll just try God. Like, no, the believer goes to God with everything. It's just a natural part of life. Some days you might pray for five minutes. Some days you might pray for an hour. Some days you might pray just for ten to fifteen seconds, over and over and over again throughout the day as things come up. But the, the, there's a organic. Natural flow of prayer in the life of a believer. That's that's what Ryle's getting at here. Um, now, I wanted to ask if you um, agree with that. I mean, do you, do you do you find objections to what he's saying? And because you know Ryle's a man, we're we're not perfect. We all um, have flaws in our theology. But do you do you think that Ryle's getting to the point here that that the Bible? teaches, prayer is an inextricable link to somebody who's been saved. It's directly connected to it. Do you all, do you all agree with that? Yes.
4: Yes.
0: All right. And I thought it was interesting. I'll, I'll make this brief comment here. Um, the, the very end of this section, you know, Ryo, we, we love the Bible. We all love Bible studies, right? We, we're Baptists. We love to um to, to do to do missions and to study the Bible and to have events like we are doing right now. But Ryle's saying, he concludes, listen, you know, upon being saved, theoretically, you don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to hear good preaching over and over and over again. You should. And that should be our goal. But what he's saying is that. You know, all these external facets of Christianity that we place so great value on, Bible study, sitting under good preaching, anybody can do that. So That's what Ryle's getting at here. Anybody can, re- can open up words on a page and, and just read. Anybody can go and find good preaching to sit under, or at least orthodox preaching to sit under. But what not everybody's going to do is humble themselves and take the time, energy, and effort To come before the living God in prayer. A God who isn't going to say anything back to you. You're not going to hear a voice. I mean, I guess you could, um, but 99.9% of the time, prayer is hard. It can be, dare I say, boring. It it, it can be uh, a challenge. It's much easier to talk to somebody who's right in front of you, is it not? But what Ryle's saying is because we walk by faith and not by sight and because, as Alan said, the spirit of the living God dwells within us, we are propelled nevertheless to pour our hearts out to God because it's natural and it's the overflow of the work God has already done inside of us. And um, no, no unbeliever is going to truly do that regularly. They might go through the motions mindlessly like the Roman Catholics do. Um, they might go to prayer meeting and close their eyes and just exist like possibly some in our church do and people all throughout um, the world do that have prayer meetings. There's a lot of people who fill a seat, but their heart and mind is not involved in it. But to truly pray, this is is what Ryle's saying, to truly pray is the mark of a believer. That can't be um, faked, cannot be faked. The true believer and the true believer alone will engage in true prayer. As we draw chapter 1 to a conclusion, you'll notice their personal responsibility. The three paragraphs there, I'm going to read all of that just to give you guys a little bit of a break. Personal responsibility. Ryle notes that there is no royal road either to health or learning. Princes and kings, poor men and peasants, all alike, must attend to the wants of their own bodies and their own minds. No man can eat, drink, or sleep by proxy. No man can get the alphabet learned for him by another. All these are things that a person must do for himself or they will not be done at all. Just as it is with the mind and the body, so it is with the soul. There are certain things absolutely needful to the soul's health and well being. Each must attend to these things for himself, each must repent for himself. Each must apply to Christ for himself. And for himself, each must speak to God and pray. You must do it for yourself, for by nobody else can it be done. To be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. Now, can you wonder that I ask the question, Do you pray? You know... And that just really echoes what we just said. Only the true believer is going to put in that effort. And I'm not talking about saying words. I'm not talking about going to prayer meetings. I'm talking about in secret, truly communing with God, pouring your heart out before the Lord, expressing your dependence upon Him. Only true Christians will do that. That is what Ryle's getting at here. And that is the personal responsibility that we have as his children to come before him and to pray.
4: That's why it's so important that the spiritual leader be a strong spiritual leader and an encouraging spiritual mm-hmm. leader to motivate the people because you have everyday lives, you have jobs that you're doing, and you need, you need that encouragement mm-hmm. when you come together to fellowship. There needs to be that leadership and you need to be fed he needs to be fed by you. You need to be fed by him. Mm -hmm. And if you're not being fed, there can be a time of famine and there could be a question and there could be Mm -hmm. a neglect of prayer, but it doesn't mean that, that you're not saved, but it means that, that, you know, that's why we come together. That's why you fellowship. You need that time to encourage each other, remind each other who's Mm -hmm. in control. Absolutely. You you don't have to challenge. You don't have to challenge. You don't have to, face the world by yourself. You mm-hmm. have to be reminded of that. And that's why it's so important to do these things like what you're, you know, what we're doing here because yeah. it encourages you and it reminds you this is who we
0: are. Yes. This this should be a joy like like what we're doing right now. This should be a joy. It should not be burdensome.
4: Well, it makes me feel ashamed because I don't pray as much as I
0: should. Well, <laughs> hey, no, brother, brother, preach it, preach it, hey, preaching to the choir. I'm like, I hope he doesn't ask me how many times i pray. No, 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 no. Listen, do, listen. We are all, we are all. I'm just being honest. No, you should though. You're yeah, right. we are on, like literally. I after the, I came, I was coming home from the gym today, and um, <laughs> I wanted so bad just to. Just to um, like listen to like a podcast or something because I was tired, been a long day. And um, what I've tried to do is when I feel that way, I try to just say, "Oh, you know what, dude? Let's 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 pray. Let's let's come before the Lord." Because sometimes this might be number six to that list I gave earlier. Sometimes God really will move profoundly in moments of prayer that you least expect. At least for me, I've found that. Like there are times where. I make the choice to pray, even though I'd rather be doing something else. And I le I finish the prayer time and I'm like, you know what? Like, man, I feel refreshed. I feel encouraged. I feel revived. And that was like coming here tonight. I, I had this on my mind. I was so excited to, to talk and to think about these truths that we were discussing. And, um, I was just asking the Lord's favor on this and for, for y'all to come and, and be encouraged. And I pray that that this will be a challenge, of course, but also an encouragement. I do have a question, though, uh, time for a little bit of group discussion um, in light of that, that closing section of chapter 1. My question is, how should Christians regard the value of church-wide prayer meetings based on what Ryle has stated throughout his first section regarding the necessity of prayer for the Christian life? Let me ask you, if I could say it another way, what would Ryle think about the modern tendency for churches to not have prayer meetings? How do you think he would respond to that based on just this literally two pages that we've we've read of him so far? I don't think he would like it a whole lot, would you?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Not at all, right? Um, I wrote here just as a note: churches should not neglect church wide prayer meetings. And members of churches that have prayer meetings should be faithful to attend such meetings on a regular basis. Listen to this quote. This, this was sent to me by a dear friend this week. Um, it's from a uh, a preacher by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. Uh, he was a uh, famous missionary and evangelist back in the 1900s. Um, th- this quote is really remarkable, and I thought it really fit in well with, with what we're hearing from Ryle tonight. Ravenhill says, if you want to see how popular the church is, look at the attendance on Sunday morning. If you want to see how popular the preacher is, look at the church on Sunday night. Punchline. If you want to see how popular God is, see the church at the prayer meeting. I think Ryle would give a hearty amen to that, just based off of the, the, the first two pages that we've read. And again, we we are all a work in progress. We all are growing in our frequency and in our desire to pray. Um, But I do believe that one of the greatest weaknesses in uh, really the last 50, 70 years in the American church that we see is that prayer meetings have been basically cast to the curb, or if they're still even in a church, they're kind of just... Ah, It's an extraneous ministry. I'll go to it maybe once in a blue moon if it fits my schedule, but it's really not a priority. But my friends, in times past, when the prayer meeting was at the center of the week, the church was set ablaze with the Spirit of God, the outpouring of divine power upon the body of Christ. And I really believe, especially with everything that we have going on, in our church specifically right now in this season, if we would commit ourselves to a retrieval of individual private prayer and corporate prayer, I believe that God would move in mighty ways. I truly believe that. Because prayer is a means God uses in his sovereignty to accomplish his purposes. We see it all throughout the scripture, particularly throughout the Old Testament. Um, But in any case, that's going to take us now to the second... Part here, the second chapter of A Call to Prayer, and this is um, titled The Habit of Prayer Mark of a True Christian. Um, It's going to reiterate some of the themes we have just talked together about, but um, some new things as well that I think will suit us um, very well as we continue to work through this. So um, the two paragraphs here on page, it says four at the bottom. I need two volunteers to read that. Sai, you take that first paragraph, and uh, Michelle, you can take the second. So, Sai, you'll read from I ask down to is praying, and then Michelle, you'll just take the bottom um, paragraph there. So, Sai, take us off whenever you're ready.
1: I ask again whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are like in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about the religion, they pray. Just the first sign of life in an infant when born into the world is an act of breathing. It's the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying.
3: This is one of the common marks of all the elect of God. They cry unto him day and night, Luke 18 The Holy Spirit, who makes them new creatures, works in them the feeling of adoption, and makes them cry. Abba, Father. Romans 8.15 The Lord Jesus, when he quickens them, gives them a voice and a tongue, and says to them, Be dumb no more. God has no dumb children. It is as much a part of their new nature to pray as it is of a child to cry. They see
0: their need of mercy and grace. They feel their emptiness and weakness. They cannot do otherwise than they do. They must pray. Amen. And just, so, just for clarification for y'all and for the listener, there's a footnote at the bottom. Um, again, this is from the 19th century. So the word dumb back then just meant unable to speak. So um, when when he wrote, uh, be dumb no more, God has no dumb children, He's the, the translation is really in effect just saying, um, be unable to speak no more, God has no Children who are unable to speak, and in the context, speak to him in prayer. Now, um, Alan, I think, I think you must have seen my notes in advance, because you, you, you really, I, I know you did, I'm just messing with you. I think that uh, you, you really hit the nail on the head for something that I really wanted to draw our attention to um, very briefly here. Notice in that, that paragraph Michelle just read, starting, I'm going to reread two sentences, and I want us to, to make an observation. Ryle, he writes... The Holy Spirit, who makes them new creatures, talking about the elect of God, who makes them new creatures, works in them the feeling of adoption, and makes them cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8, 15. The Lord Jesus, when he quickens them, gives them a voice and a tongue, says to them, be unable to speak no more. So I made a little note here, and I wanted you guys to to see it. Alan already touched on it um, previously on a different point. But I want us to note Ryle's organic tracing of the sovereignty of God, and particularly how it applies to prayer. Notice this. The Holy Spirit brings sinners from spiritual death to spiritual life through regeneration. That's what it's referring to when it says the Holy Spirit who makes them new creatures, there's spiritual death to spiritual life through regeneration. So God is sovereign in salvation, absolutely sovereign in salvation. Um, The Holy Spirit provides the new creature with assurance of salvation. Notice that phrase, the Holy Spirit works in them the feeling of adoption. That's God's sovereignty over assurance in the Christian life. And lastly, the Holy Spirit prompts the believer to pray to their Heavenly Father. And notice that last phrase there in that sentence, that first sentence of the two that we just read. The Holy Spirit, it says, makes them cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. So, God is absolutely sovereign in the believer's salvation. The the, the, the triune God is absolutely sovereign in the believer's um, assurance of salvation, which comes, of course, through sanctification. And the Holy Spirit, um, and by extension, of course, the, the entire Godhead, is also sovereign in the act of prompting the believer to pray. And that's exactly what Alan was talking about. It's the sovereignty of God undergirding the entire divine prompting to ultimately bring a redeemed sinner to the point of prayer. So I I just wanted us to make that observation. I I thought it was very fascinating. And uh, Alan kind of stole our thunder earlier, but I love the the feedback there, brother. So I'm grateful for your commentary. I'm going to read those final three paragraphs right there on the page listed five on the bottom. Ryle, continuing his thought, he says, I have looked carefully over the lives of God's saints in the Bible. I cannot find one of whose history much is told us. From Genesis to Revelation, who is not a man of prayer? I find it mentioned as a characteristic of the godly that they call on the Father, 1 Peter 1.17, or the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Recorded as a characteristic of the wicked is the fact that they call not upon the Lord, Psalm Fourteen four. Ryle continues by saying, I have read the lives of many eminent Christians who have been on earth since the the Bible days. Some of them I see were rich and some were poor. Some were learned and some were unlearned. Some of them were Episcopalians and some Christians of other names. Some were Calvinists. Some were Arminians. Some have loved to use a liturgy and some to use none. But one thing I see that they all had in common. They have all been men of prayer, I study the reports of missionary societies in our own times. I see with joy that heathen men and women are receiving the gospel in various parts of the globe. There are conversions in Africa, in New Zealand, in Hindustan, in China. The people converted are naturally unlike one another in every respect, but one striking thing I observe at all the missionary stations. Ryle concludes. The converted people always pray. Now, it takes us to um, the next two paragraphs, which I will need some volunteers for. Okay, Michelle again, and Emma, you can take the second one. So you get that short one right there, Michelle, and Emma, you can take the next one there.
3: not for a moment pretend to say that the mere fact of a person's praying proves everything about his soul, as in every other part of religion, so also in this there may be deception and hypocrisy.
2: But this I do say, that not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot, he cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself, a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness, He cannot desire heaven. He has yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature. He may boast confidently in of election, grace, faith, hope, knowledge, <clears throat> and deceive ignorant people. But you may rest assured that it is all vain. Talk if he does not pray. Mm.
0: it's tough man Ryle, Ryle, hey, the man of granite with the heart of a child <laughs> uh, so really just to make it practical um, before we move much further here we're almost done notice there, right towards the top of page 5 there were there were three explicit um, I guess you could call them theological traditions mentioned you have Episcopalian uh, theology, Calvinistic theology, and Arminian theology, and of course, he even says in there um, Christians of other names. So he he's, he's saying there's all these different theological traditions that he's familiar with, right? And he he, he says though to, to to drive it home, you know, there's all these theological traditions. They're all involved in gospel outreach, and I praise God for the work they're doing, but. Despite all their differences, and there are very real differences through these theological traditions if you were to compare them side by side, Ryle's saying in spite of all their differences, there's one thing that unites them. There's a commonality, and it's prayer. And in light of that, I I want us to think through this, and and this is, again, don't view this as me on my high horse because I'm in the same spot as y'all, but I want us to think What do you find of greater value based on what Ryle is saying here? Is it better to have really sound doctrine, know all the answers, and not really be involved in prayer? Or maybe to have orthodox doctrine, you might not have all the answers, but you're, you're solid on the foundations, but man, you're a prayer warrior. You're going before the Lord corporately, privately, you're dependent upon the Lord what, which of those do you think Ryle would rather have, the first or the second? The second. The second, I would, right?
1: I would say two because I mean, you can have, knowledge, doesn't give you that salvation. It's what you do behind closed doors. Because mm. if you do stuff, like what, what's that passage? You do it just to ring the gong.
0: Oh, you're, if if I do all these things without love, I'm a I'm a sounding gong. Yeah. Is that what you're you're quoting there? Maybe.
1: Yeah. It's like you, if you, you can't have, if you pray and you have all the answers, but you do it all in public, but, and you don't have anything behind closed doors, I would rather have a child's faith and have a great prayer life Mm. than have all the answers Mm -hmm. and not be sincere.
0: I couldn't agree more, and that's why this is so convicting. Because like I, like I said earlier, anybody can read the Bible. Anybody can listen to good preaching. A parrot, really good theologians throughout church history. That's all great. But who are you when it's just you and God? Let me tell you this. If you're not born again, you'll never pray. Because it, it, it's not fun just to sit there and have to force your mind to think coherently and be honest with yourself before the Most High. Unbelievers want nothing to do with that. Um, only the believer wants that. And, and here's what I wrote down, because I, I don't want you all to misunderstand what Ryle said. Ryle was a brilliant theologian. Okay. Um, ideally, Ryle would say, it's better to have sound doctrine and to be a person of prayer. It, 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 in, in a perfect world, we want to be both. We want to be great theologians. We also want to be men and women of prayer. But if you had to pick one extreme or the other, Give me, says Ryle, give me the person, or as you said, Cy, they've got a childlike faith, they know the gospel, they've got the fundamentals down, they're orthodox Christians, but they pray and they love God and their piety is there, versus the ivory tower theologian that never prays, is cold, aloof, and and has no piety. Ryle says, give me that first one all day. You know, I think it was Spurgeon who said, just just to drive this home, he's like, give me the Arminian who will evangelize and preach the gospel to everybody versus the Calvinist who is smart and knows all the answers but is just aloof and wants nothing to do with the gospel, wants nothing to do with showing the love of Christ. That's really what we're getting to. Sometimes it's better to have the piety and not the theology if the piety is removed. Again, perfect world, best case scenario. You want to have both. We should strive for both. But Ryle, I think, is really hitting an important um, principle here that you've got to have piety because that's what the Christian life is all about. It's not just a, a test. It's not just a system. It's not just having the right answers and doing the right things in the sight of others and, 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 in, um, and doing everything you're supposed to do because you know that you're being watched and evaluated from the outside, but it's rather about the heart. It's about the overflow of a heart that has been born again that loves God and wants to honor Him. That's Christianity. Uh, It's a relationship with God and a desire to honor Him as a result of having received His saving grace. Well, as we continue now, um, under the subheading Real Evidence, I'm going to read the next three paragraphs here. Ryle says, I say furthermore that of all the evidences of the real work of the Spirit... A habit of hearty private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. A man may preach from false motives. A man may write books, make fine speeches, and seem diligent in good works, and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is in earnest. The Lord himself has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion, when he sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, he gave him no other evidence of his change of heart than this. Quote, "Behold, he prayeth," Acts 9:11. Ryle continues, "I know that much may go on in a man's mind before he is brought to pray. He may have many convictions, desires, wishes, feelings, intentions, resolutions, hopes and fears. But all these things are very uncertain evidences. They are to be found in ungodly people and often come to nothing. In many a case, they are not more lasting than the morning cloud and the dew that passeth away. A real hearty prayer coming from a broken and contrite spirit is worth all these things put together. I know that the Holy Spirit, who calls sinners from their evil ways, does in many instances lead them by very slow degrees to acquaintance with Christ. But the eye of man can only judge by what it sees. I cannot call anyone justified until he believes... I dare not say that anyone believes until he prays. I cannot understand a dumb faith. The first act of faith will be to speak to God. Faith is to the soul what life is to the body. Prayer is to faith what breath is to life. How a man can live and not breathe is past my comprehension, and how a man can believe and not pray is past my comprehension too. Let me draw your attention here. There's a lot there, but I... I, we in, in a lot. Some of it's repetitive, but we, we briefly touched on this. And as we prepare to close, I want to make sure that y'all y'all come away with this as well as me, because it's very easy as as we've talked about on a few occasions tonight. It's very easy to come away from this and say, "Man, I just don't measure up. I'm just not there." But notice that very first sentence in that third paragraph. He Ryle says, "I know that the Holy Spirit who calls sinners from their evil ways." Does in many instances lead them by very slow degrees to acquaintance with Christ. If you've got a highlighter or a pen, highlight it, underline it, start. It. That is key. My friends, your progress in your prayer life, your sanctification is progressive, it's gradual, it's slow at some times. But the key is if you're in Christ, it's going to be there. You're going to grow, you're going to develop, your prayer life's going to be further cultivated. It's a process, though. Ryle knows that. He's very clear to throw this in here, and it's something that we all need to be mindful of. Um, Just because you don't pray for four hours doesn't mean you're a lesser believer. It's not what Ryle's trying to say here. He's saying that if you pray at all, praise the Lord, and as you're further grounded in your faith, you will see slowly but surely increases in frequency and time, and intentionality in your prayers. And that, I pray, is an encouragement to you and to me. Um, first off, do you pray at all? The answer to that is yes, praise the Lord. Um, we trust that's an expression of your genuine saving faith in Christ. Now build on that. Build on it. View it as a joy. View it as a privilege. And before we finalize um, our devotional and prepare for a season of prayer, I do need one volunteer to read the rest of that um section Psy, go ahead and read from the word never to the question do you pray right before chapter 3 begins
1: Never never be surprised if you hear ministers of the gospel dwelling much in importance of prayer this is the point we want to bring to you we want to know that you pray your views of doctrine may be correct your love of
0: protestantism
1: protestantism May be warm, warm and unmistakable, but this may be nothing more than head knowledge, and part, and party spirit. We want to know whether you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace, and whether you can speak to God as well, you speak- as, well as you speak about God. Mm. Do you wish to find out whether you are a true Christian? Then the rest assured my question. So very first importance,
0: do you pray? Amen. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for the listener. Um, That's the challenge that we all need to heed tonight, that we would not merely be those who possess sound doctrine, as important as that is, as much as we should pursue sound doctrine, but that we would be those who express our love for God, our piety, our dependence upon God that we would be those who do that on a regular basis and ultimately that we would be those who are naturally drawn to pray. Well, for the listener, that's going to conclude tonight's devotional. Um, I pray that this time of study was a blessing to you and I pray that you would be led to pray um, as we are about to do before drawing our gathering to a conclusion. God bless you.